Corona so. So to make the segue from the meditation and the discussion yesterday to a new meditation and a new discussion today, let's just look back very briefly at that. It was a kind of meditation that the Buddha was giving to Bahia. And certainly he accepted it such, because by the time the, again, by the time the talk was over he'd achieved arhatship. But you don't need to remind, be reminded of the theme of it. It's so to the point, clear, precise, transparent. Um, and if we should summarize it, kind of the mood of it, the strategy of it, I think we can, strat- if we can summarize that in a very contemporary phrase. Hey, come to your senses. Come to your senses. In the scene, there is just the scene. In the herd, there's herd, and, just, and so forth, right on into, for these, in the cognized, there is just the cognized. That is, mental events are just mental events. They're nothing more. That's a, that's a big one. That's a big one. Each one of them, I mean, he's just hammering the same nail in deeper and deeper and deeper. But the mental events, see the mental events as mental events. In the cognized, there is just the cognized. They are nothing other than the cognized. The thoughts coming to mind, the images coming to mind, the memory come to mind, they are just mental events. They are not their reference. They are not something existing outside of your mind in some objectively existent, independent, physical reality. And we often think we are. When we slip into, again, what's called a refractory period, kind of a narrowing down, a a strong filtration, a bias, a a warping, so that we become fixated and can even actually become deranged. Whenever that's taking place, we are almost certainly, we're conflating just the ideas, images, and so forth with a reality that exists independently out there in the objective physical world. In other words, we're doing exactly what we do in a non-lucid dream. I mean, exactly. And that is everything you're experiencing in a, non, in a non-lucid dream, in a dream of any kind, but in a non-lucid dream in particular, everything you're experiencing is non-physical. There are no atoms in the dream. That's why the laws of physics don't hold in the dream. Uh, they are purely crystallizations, formations of consciousness, or the space of the mind, taking on these forms of illusions, like, like rainbows, like holographic images. Uh, they're just empty appearances, But of course, in a non-lucid dream, as Freud said, you're basically psychotic. In an ordinary dream, you're basically psychotic. You're you're dealing in an imaginary world that is completely a free creation of your own mind, and you think it's objectively real. Now that's what people with deep, deep psychosis feel. They're caught up in a totally imaginary world, and yet they think it's real. So I've had no training whatsoever in psychoanalysis or clinical psychology, nothing. So let's have that on the table. But I'm going to guess that if one were a therapist, a psychiatrist, and you're dealing with a paranoid schizophrenic or a person who is suffering other types of severe delusions, I would imagine that the therapist would try to maintain a conversation. Come back, come back, come back. No, wait a minute, no, come back. Where's the evidence? No, I think probably something of that sort. I'm just speaking as an absolute amateur. But to get them out of this fantasy that they're living in, that they take to be real, while not acknowledging and not being aware of what is actually appearing to their senses. The therapist does not have a knife, doesn't have a gun under the, you know, 
under the table and so forth. Note the therapist is not out to get you. So come out of this imaginary realm and come to your senses. That's what the Buddha was saying. But Bahia was not psychotic. Bahia was living in this non-lucid dream that we call, oh yeah, we do, don't we? Reality. Yeah. So come to your senses. And when you come to your senses, and you see that was profoundly non-dogmatic. There was no brainwashing there. There was not believe in karma or believe in... No, it's just come to your senses and see what's manifestly appearing to your senses. And if we put this into 21st century terminology, which is so neutral, it has no dogmatic spin to it at all, uh, and there's agreement, widespread agreement, among sensible scientists, that these appearances, this, and all of them, the colors, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the feelings of warmth, of softness, and so forth, they are not there in the physical world. I don't know a single neuroscientist that says, oh yeah, your, uh, your senses are just like flypaper. They just pick up colors and smells that are actually out there in the objective world. I don't know a single one who believes that. Because that would mean that the, actually your brain is just basically created a flypaper. Because it just picks up stuff coming in. You know, I mean, that's oversimplification, but nobody believes that. So there's no reason to believe, for us to believe that. And the physicists will say, say the same thing. And so do very astute Buddhists who have studied this in depth. So that being the case, these appearances are not, do not exist in physical space. Anybody who thinks they're actually inside neurons should come to their senses. Just come, now, take me by the hand here. Take, come on, come on, here we go. Now we're going to look at a brain. Now look at the neurons. You see the neurons? Now keep looking. No, 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 keep looking. See? There are no colors in there, except the colors of the neurons, and they're appearing in the space of your mind. There are no sounds in the brain. There's no smells in the brain. There's no, they're not there. Do you see now? Don't, don't flip out. Don't, 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 no, 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 don't, don't go away. No, there's no emotions in there. There's no thoughts in there. It's chemicals and electricity, and that's all there is in the brain. And yes, they're immensely complicated. But that's all there is in the brain, chemicals and electricity, in very complex formations. But the mere fact that they're complex doesn't mean that there are thoughts and images and so forth in your brain. Have you understood that now? Have you come out of your psychosis of thinking that, in fact, there are little images in your brain? Because there is no evidence for that so whatsoever. It is kind of a psychosis, isn't it? Because it's completely imaginary, with no basis in reality whatsoever. And yet people keep on talking that way. In the media, it's every single day. So come to your senses, he's saying. Come to your senses. What are we aware of? Everything that, of which we are immediately aware in terms of all this imagery, all these appearances, the qualia, to our six senses, very much, of course, including the mental sense. They're all non-physical. But we're not just getting, getting images. Right now, I'm just not throwing images at you. I'm not simply throwing sounds at you. A sound is an auditory image, right? So yes, I am throwing sounds at you. That is, sounds are appearing in the space of your awareness as a result of air coming out of my mouth. But there's more than that, isn't there? Of course there is. Yeah. Mary Kay just nodded. That wasn't because I went, <laughs> you know. It's because I, made, I conveyed some information that she understood and she was agreeing. And so people do that all the time. It's quite mysterious, that, though. You know. I mean, it, I'm actually very serious. That information, of course, also, just like red and the smell of a rose, has no mass. It has no physical location. It 
has no speed. It has no physical attributes whatsoever. And anybody who looks at that should, make, should be perfectly obvious. And here information is being transmitted, and it's having an impact on matter. It's non-physical. It's having impact on matter. That's peculiar. But it's true. Yeah. Yeah, she says she said so too, and the head's nodding up and down, up and down. So in other words, everything we're experiencing when we come to our senses, when we come out of our imagination, when we come out of our dogmas and belief systems, <laughs> everything we're immediately experiencing is non-physical. Everything we're experiencing consists really of only two types of phenomena. There's awareness, that's the most, I would suggest, and this is a very non-dogmatic proposal, I would suggest that awareness is the most indubitable reality that we know of. The most absurd to deny, because in the very fact of if you should try to deny it, you're denying it consciously, which is already crazy. You can't consciously deny that you're conscious. And if you're unconscious when you deny it, it doesn't count. <laughs> this would be, you know, I don't know. No, it's just too absurd to talk about. So there it is. So there's the most undeniable point. Because it is possible that right now we're dreaming. I mean, it's conceivable. It's not a logical impossibility, right? And I've often, often given this example. If suddenly I should start levitating and turn into a pink polka-dotted frog hovering in midair, breathing fire and smelling like pineapple. I think that would be compelling evidence that, in fact, <laughs> you're dreaming <laughs> a very, and what did you have for dinner, <laughs> you know? <laughs> what, what, who slipped that detour into your, into your drink, you know? But it's possible, please, I can, it, in principle, it's possible, in principle, as a thought experiment, to persuade that, in fact, I'm not here, you're not there, none of this is happening, because it's all just purely a figment of your imagination. That's possible, in principle. Yeah. But... Again, I'm going to make this statement, and I've made it many times, so I'll be brief. I think there is no evidence I can even conceivably present you that could persuade you, as a rational person, that you're not conscious. Because you're still conscious of this big pink polka dot toad that smells like a pineapple. You're still conscious, right? And so if I give you some reasoning and you understand it, then you have to be conscious of that, which means you cannot negate that by which you understood the reasoning. And if I show you some empirical evidence, the only way you would understand that or pick it up is if you're conscious. So therefore, conscious, consciousness, the sheer reality of being conscious, and I did not use a first-person pronoun there. I didn't use the word I, because that's a mysterious one. But the reality of being conscious, that's a very neutral statement. No ontological burden there at all, right? That is indubitable. I would say, there you stand. So I, I will go deeper than Descartes deeper than I think, therefore I am, awareness happens. That's, what, that's where I'm going to drop my anchor. But then there's something else that is just, it, it's actually equally indubitable. No sane person can doubt it. A person who is not completely delusional can doubt it. Appearances are happening. Right? I mean, really, how can anybody deny that? Appearances are happening. Right? Appearances are happening. To us who are conscious, appearances are happening. 
Now that's what we know. Awareness has no physical attributes. And it cannot be measured physically. That should be slam dunk. If you want to know whether awareness is physical or not, that should end the conversation. It has no physical attributes when you observe it, and it cannot be measured physically. Therefore, what more do you need? You know? And then likewise for appearances, these qualia that are, right, that are not out there in the physical world, that have no physical attributes, have no mass, etc., etc., are not located in physical space either inside the head or outside the head. These two are indubitable. Now, this is what he's getting at here. In that opening salvo from Padmasambhava by way of Dujum Lingba, he said, okay, among the body, speech, and mind, recognize which one's primary. And I'm going to tell you, it's the mind. You know, because he's doing it in one line. He has to get to the chase. He has to get to the point. It's the mind. The mind is the all-creating sovereign. Kunje Gyalpo. The mind is the all-creating sovereign. So, what are we left with here? With the Buddha's guidance to Bahia, with the teachings from Padmasambhava, is that all that we actually know, all that we're immediately aware of, we know with certitude, with no dogma at all, religious, anti-religious, materialistic, transcendent, whatever, is awareness and appearances. Awareness of appearances. Appearances to awareness. That's it. And it's all non-physical. It has no material attributes whatsoever. That's reality. When we come to our senses, and we're just being quiet and trying to be really intelligent and discerning and attentive, that's what's left when we're not imagining the world and then if we come, again, to briefly synopsize the critics' uh, counterpoint to this and say, yeah, but come on, there's a world out there independent of all these appearances. And I'm going to say, could be. How do you know? How do you know? By logical inference? You mean the world out there is actually creating all the appearances we're experiencing, and the world out there is actually creating our awareness of it? Yeah? So you're going to infer, because you can't see it, of course, that world out there, beyond the veil of appearances, you can't see it, because you, you know, it's appearances. It's appearances all the way up and all the way down, and they're all non-physical. But you're saying there's a world out there independent of our appearances. And you're saying that's actually the source of all the appearances? And they, they, yeah, 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 yeah. Good. How do you know about that? Because you're, you don't see it, right? No, no. We, as John Wheeler, a very brilliant physicist, said, all that we're actually dealing with as physicists, what we're dealing with, our core fundamental material that we know is information. That's primary. Information is not physical. And as he states, our Conceptual categories, space, time, matter, and energy, these are categories devised by the human mind based upon information. And although space, time, matter, energy can be regarded as physical, information cannot. It has no physical attributes. It can't be measured physically. So what you're doing here is you're inferring the cause on the basis of the effect. Like inferring smoke on the basis of fire, but you've never seen the cause, right? So how do you know what that cause is when you've never seen it? You've never seen fire? How are you ever going to infer fire if you've never seen fire? All you've seen is smoke. How do you possibly know that? 
And moreover, here's where I really have to say you're delusional. And that is you're saying the world that's really out there is physical. It's become such a commonplace that you seem like you're stupid if you doubt it. Who defined physical? The category. It's a category. Who defined it? God? You don't believe in God. Nature? Nature doesn't talk. Mathematics? Sorry, mathematics is also non-physical. All the laws of mathematics are non-physical. They have no mass. They're not located in space. So you think that's what's out there? That's fine, but it's not physical. So what's out there, really? And how do you know? How do you infer the cause when you've never, from, on the basis of the effect, when you've never seen the cause? You've got a logical conundrum here that just won't go away. And so from this perspective, which is radically empirical, I mean, this is just, this is just so profoundly non-dogmatic. If dogma is over here, this is on the opposite end of the pole. This is radically empirical. It just says, come to your senses, and that's all six of them. Don't pretend you don't have a sixth sense, which is mental awareness, mental consciousness, and a sixth domain, which is widely ignored in today's world. So the mind here is now designated by Padmasambhava as the all-creating sovereign. We have it from the Padmasambhava, we have it from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. You had the quote yesterday. All these phenomena arise from the mind. They consist of the mind. They're governed by the mind. The mind alone is real. All that is real is awareness and appearances to awareness. And none of those are physical the notion, the very notion of a physical is something that is constructed by the mind. And we have no knowledge of the physical whatsoever except for by way of these conceptual constructs that we have superimposed upon non-physical appearances. It's kind of looking like a joke now. The mind alone is real. And any notion of there being a physical universe out there independent of the mind, independent of appearances. Come to your senses. Nobody has ever seen that physical universe. You've imagined it. As Andre Linda, who's no flake, right? As he said, we've substituted the world of our experience for a world that we've conceived. That's physical, but nobody has ever seen it. They've only imagined it. Does this sound like psychosis? The mind alone is real. Awareness alone is real. Mind alone is real. The appearances to the mind, that alone is real. That alone has causal efficacy. A, a mind and the appearances to the mind, and they do have causal efficacy, just watch. And you can see in this play, this dreamlike play, and that's what it is, this dreamlike play we can see in, in terms of all these non-physical appearances. We do see that there are regularities, there are patterns, there's causality, there's actions and there are results, causes and consequences, but all within the field of immaterial appearances arising to immaterial awareness, and that's all there is. And so 
this is the conclusion from radical empiricism, and then we turn to the whole scientific community, and especially the poor souls who regard themselves as materialists, and say, the world out there that you believe exists independently of experience, independently of mind, independently of appearances, and is create and consists solely of configurations of space-time, matter, and energy, is a complete, absolute fiction that has no existence whatsoever. It is merely something you've imagined. But that universe living out there, independent of appearances in the mind, is totally non-existent, and you are, frankly, living in a fantasy world. Because your world doesn't exist at all out there, as you absolutely are convinced it does. And moreover, the world you have invented, concocted, and then agreed upon within your own particular circle, is quite tragic, really. When you describe human existence, let's use the words of the very eminent and late evolutionary biologist named Stephen Jay Gould, very eminent. And he said, and I quote him verbatim, I checked, I can give you the source, Evolution is purposeless, non-progressive, and materialistic. That's from a believer. That's from a person for whom this is his dharma. He just described his dharma to you. And this is what's being taught in elementary schools all over the planet now. That you are an animal and welcome to a world that is materialistic, pointless, without any progression. And by the way, also, you have simply not evolved in such a way that you are in any position to know reality, because that is not biologically adaptive. So if you think you've understood reality, you're probably false. Including the statement that evolution is a true theory. Circular, yeah? Circular. So it really sounds like kind of a very terrible form of psychosis where the whole universe that you've imagined, as one very eminent astrophysicist said, the more we understand the universe, the more pointless it appears, meaningless it appears. That's from a cosmologist, Nobel laureate, by the way. You've imagined for yourself a desperately bleak, barren, dehumanized universe in which you are radically disempowered because you're nothing more than a biologically programmed robot, in which consciousness either doesn't exist or is impotent. So I wonder if we really should be really surprised that rates of depression have gone up 10 times over the last 60 years, as this is being taught in schools everywhere, all over the planet. So we see this view where, where Dujum Lingba, Padmasamava, has brought us to is really, now we use Buddhist terminology, I'm going to stay here for a while, Jitamatra, mind only. Mind only. And it says, look, we're being radically empirical here, and there is just no rational or empirical grounds for pretending that you can know what lies beyond appearances, and moreover, that you can know that it's physical, that somehow the universe, which is out there independent of us, has so conformed, is so, con con so, how do we say, constituted, that its basic constructs cons conform to our ideas. 
Why on earth would you think that? That a universe you say was formed starting 13.8 billion years ago and has 100 billion galaxies, why on earth would you think that it consists only of the things that you scientists can conceive of with your little mammalian brains? Why do you think this? This is, this is infinite hubris. That the universe is created in the image of man or man's imagination. And by the way, it's out there. We just discovered it. You really sound like you're psychotic. Illusions of grandeur, except for the illusions of grandeur, are you are a meaningless moat of dust, evolved for no purpose except for to continue yourself. If you're not depressed now, you're really not listening. Because <laughs> this is an unbearably bleak vision of reality that's being taught in schools all over the world today. So when I spoke yesterday, I didn't really elaborate, but two bulls, two big bulls, running, it's like, you know, 30 kilometers an hour, head on. We're seeing the bull of Chittamatra, mind only. And you can see it's not just, I didn't cite a single source here. I didn't say, oh, Dharmakirti said this, and Asanga said that, and Chandragoman said that. I didn't cite one source or scripture or dogma. It was just radical evidence and reasoning. That's how I got here. Right? So there's one bull, the Chittamatra, that says, you, materialists in particular, and the scientific community in general, you are living in a fantasy world, thinking there's a physical universality, independent of your theories, and your theories are trying to approximate that freestanding, intimate reality. You are out of your minds, completely out of your minds. You're living in a total fantasy realm. We should have a, a very, very large mental asylum just for scientists and materialists, to try to come to your senses, come to your senses, you know, try to get over this, you know. In the meantime, the scientific community at large, and not everybody in it, but the materialists, are saying, you Buddhists, my God, I, I didn't think you had it this bad. I had no idea that you were this far out. We kind of like Buddhism, you know, Four Noble Truths and so forth. It kind of sounded like good therapy, but what you've just said is, you Buddhists are out of your minds. <laughs> You're denying the only reality that exists. Come on. This is a universe here. We've done 400 years of superb research. We have consensual knowledge up the Yazoo. And you're saying that we're psychotic. I'm sorry, but you're psychotic. You're living in a fantasy realm, thinking only the mind, the mind exists. The mind is a function of the brain. Haven't you gotten that yet? Images, appearances, they're functions of the brain. You still haven't gotten that. Everybody knows that. What desert island have you been living on for the last 400 years? You Buddhists, I, I respected you until you opened your mouths and I see, oh man, you are tragic. No wonder you think life is suffering. So somebody's profoundly wrong here, because they could not be more diametrically opposed. And now I want to quote not some crazies in the scientific and materialist community, but highly respected people. And I won't give any names, because I don't care about names. If you need them, I'll tell you, if you on, on, on a need-to-know basis. But I will say this, and that is every statement I'm about to make is made by a distinguished scientist with very high reputation, widely admired. OK, you ready? OK. Introspection doesn't exist. It's not, it's not possible to observe the mind. In fact, subjective experience, these words 
emotions, thoughts, and so forth, they actually don't refer to anything. In fact, subjective experience doesn't exist. In fact, consciousness doesn't exist. In fact, there's no mind-body problem because there is no mind. And the reason for that is that human beings are mindless robots made up of mindless robots. And of course, all mental problems are simply nothing more than physiological disorders in the brain. So what could be more different? Now, in Buddhism there's said to be two types of ignorance. I'll say that twice, because it's two, two, two times, two times. There's conate ignorance, and that's what we're born with. We can't blame materialists or Christianity or anything else, any dogma, any parent. We can't. We're born with it. Born with it. Conate ignorance. We're born with it. Conate. But there's something very special about conate ignorance, the kind that we're born with, right? And that is the conate ignorance is of a type of ignorance or delusion that is affirming that which doesn't exist to be existent. In other words, it projects. It projects. It projects a real autonomous self where there is none. It projects permanence where there is none. It projects this person is the very source of my happiness where that's not true. It projects this person is the source of my misery, and that's not true. So it's projecting all over the place. In other words, we are natural projectors. We are naturally prone to living in imaginary worlds, and whether it's a materialistic imaginary world, or consider this one. Everything written in the Bible is literally true. In fact, the sun does go around the earth. The earth was created about 8,000 years ago. Yes, several thousand years ago, all the terrestrial animals Noah put on a big boat and all the animals we have together actually stem from the ark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those fossil bones from dinosaurs, those are planted by tricksters. And the carbon dating, that's simply delusional. There are Christians who say that. But they have almost no respect from educated, well-informed Christian theologians. I mean, I know that my, fa- my father's a theologian. He just scoffs at that and says, oh my goodness, how bone brain dead is that? So the Christian fundamentalists who are saying these ridiculous things, they are scoffed at by the well-informed Christians in the community. right? Whereas the scientists who are saying subjective experience doesn't exist. Well, I'll tell you one, one philosopher. And again, words and names are not important. But there's one philosopher that says, subjective experience is an illusion, it does not exist. This person won a MacArthur Award, which is a genius award. Yeah, genius award. Comes with a lot of cash. Right? The person who said that all psychological problems are nothing more than neurophysiological problems in the brain has a Nobel Prize. Okay. So we have the stupidest Christians saying the stupidest things. And we have eminent scientists saying stupider things. Because really, what is stupider? To believe that the Earth is 7,000 years old, or to believe that consciousness doesn't exist, which I just commented is probably the most indubitable knowledge we have. So conate ignorance we have naturally. But there's another kind of ignorance 
that we have to learn, and the second type of ignorance is acquired ignorance. So here's one. Uh, women, just because they are women, with their menstrual cycle and all of that, really are incapable of getting higher education. They're just, not, they're just not up to it. And if they get it, it will be wasted, because they're going to be having babies anyway. And they're just so emotional, they won't be able to think rationally for a continuous time anyway. The cycle comes up, and they're all going bananas every month. <laughs> You know, so there's just no point in giving higher education. I mean, women doctors, what an oxymoron. You know, and women, oh my God, women lawyers and heads of state and heads of businesses and, you know, they really, they're just not up to it. Okay, now that was very widespread belief until about a century ago. That was the common view, right? That is denying, that's a type of learned ignorance because nobody's born with that kind of stupidity. You have to be indoctrinated into men are naturally superior. Women are not men. Therefore, they're men, women, and animals. And animals and women should not get higher education. And in some countries nowadays, they shouldn't get any education at all. To that point that they will be shot if they try. Okay, That's learned ignorance. And so when we are denying that the existence of that which does exist, that's learned ignorance. It's learned delusion, you're not born with that. So the notion that thoughts don't exist, introspection doesn't exist, qualia, which is all that we're actually aware of, doesn't exist, you have to learn that. You have to learn that. Because nobody is that delusional when they're born. So here's the point. This looks like big drama. I'm about to end. We're going to go into meditation. But this strategy here, because that's what it is. This is Padmasambhava's strategy. He's saying, here's your first point. Before you launch into shamatha, taking the impure mind as the path, I want you to see before you launch how enormously important the mind is. It's more important than your body. It's more important. It's more primary than your speech. It is the most important. When you die, your body turns to dust. Your speech just vanishes. Consciousness continues. Right? To linger just there just a little bit. Speech. <laughs> well, one can, speech is something that comes, it's kind of like something that comes as a result of two waves coming together. Because you can't talk without having a body. At least not talk in any kind of public way that we're f familiar with. But you also can't talk without having a mind. You just make noise. Right? So it's an interface of body and mind. Right? Articulate speech. That's very common. That's very easy. But now let's take this, I'm going to leap ahead just a tiny bit. And that is, of course, as you're all aware, having settled the mind in a natural state for a week or so, you're, what, there's another kind of speech going on. And that's private speech. It's speech taking place in your mind. It's the inner chit-chat, the talking, the conceptualization, and so forth. And that's also a type of speech. We know that perfectly well. We know that in a dream, or within the dream, you have no physical body. Within the dream, there's no physical body. You can talk. You can understand. In Buddhist worldview, in the bardo, you can hear sound. You can talk in the bardo. In research on out-of-body experience, people having, whose brains are dead and they're having out-of-body experience, they can hear people talking, talking in the surgery room, operation room. But what's more interesting than this is that we have these appearances, right? Just the appearances. When we just come to our senses, 
as Buddha told Bahia, coming into our senses and you're simply aware of these appearances, we note that none of them talk. That is, among the five physical senses, none of them talk. They don't have words, they don't have labels. And even the images coming to mind, they're just images. They too are just images, images, images. But then the mental conversation, conceptual designation, talks the world into existence. Talks the world into objects here and subjects here and this object and that object by the power of conceptual designation and it's also called by the power of verbal designation. And then internal verbal is mental conceptual designation. The world is spoken into existence. The world is conceived into existence. The world of objects that have appearances as their attributes. Right? So in this regard, speech, internal speech, is more primary than the physical world. Because as John Wheeler said, everything we know about physical world is by way of information. That's speech. Speech is information. Information is speech. And there is no physical world that we have any access to or have know, have, know anything about apart from information. Physicists and everybody else speaks the universe into existence by objectifying what we think is out there. But then there is no speech. If we're looking for a real hierarchy here, and that's exactly what Padmasambhava is suggesting, if we're looking for a primary, the, the, the physical is the most primitive, the, the most easy to dispense with. Hey, you're dead, big deal. Into the bardo, you can still talk, you can listen, you have a mind. Of course, the speech may disappear. You may settle your physical speech into its natural state of effortless silence, and you may also settle your mind in its natural state of effortless silence. But there's still something left over. Oh, awareness. So in this regard, then, the body is the most derivative, the most superficial, the most outermost shell. Speech, especially the speech of the mind that spins the universe into existence, that's more primary. But there is no speech without awareness. Awareness is, and awareness can talk or not talk. It has a choice. No awareness, no talk, no speech, no information without awareness. Therefore, mind is primary. So what to do for people like myself, who, I will say as I've said a number of times, have great admiration, respect, appreciation for science and the scientific worldview. What to do? Because scientific worldview and Chittamatra are in a collision course and there will be, on one side of the fence or the other, there will be no survivors. Because one's saying there is no physical universe out there, and especially materialistic science, and of course not all scientists are materialists, but materialistic science, that of behaviors like John Watson, B.F. Skinner, and I'll give many, many, many other names of people who are really hardcore materialists, they will say the world of subjective experience doesn't exist. And only the physical exists. So that couldn't be more about diametrically opposed. They're saying, one side is saying, you're totally wrong, and the other side is saying, you're totally wrong. So now do we have to make a choice? You can either follow the Buddhist path, which is radically empirical, or you can follow the scientific path, which is radically practical. And with all this wonderful technology, and elegant mathematics, and elegant theories, and so much consensus, so much momentum behind it. So do we have to choose? Is there a middle way? Mm -hmm.
And if so, how do we find that? Or we can embrace the wisdom teachings of the Buddha and embrace this superb body of knowledge from the scientific community and have our cake and eat it. How do we do that? We go to the next, me next meditation. <laughs> that's where we go right now. Please find a comfortable sit posture. Now again with a sense of ease, relaxation, letting go. Settle the body, speech, and mind in the natural state. And for just a minute or two, calm the discursive mind. Come to that inner silence, truly settling your mind in its natural state of effortless silence. With mindfulness of breathing, Now, just a short time, settle your mind in this natural state. You know how.
So now within the category of conate ignorance, the tendency to project that which is not there as being there from its own side. In other words, playful imagination is wonderful, no problem. But when we imagine something and then assume that it's there independent of our imagination, inherently existent from its own side, that's delusional. In every sense of the term, that is delusional. So from the Jitta-Matra perspective, the end point of that first meditation we did yesterday, the mind, your mind, is the all-creating sovereign. You are in the center of your mandala, and your mind, your mind, has created the entire mandala of your universe. The mind, your mind, is the creator. When we come to this conclusion, it is almost certain that when we place this ontological priority, the primacy of the whole of reality on the mind, it is almost certain that we will reify the mind as well. We will consider the mind, our own mind, as something that already exists. It's already there. It is inherently there. It is as real as anything, and it was already there. Before it was, con- before there was any conceptions about it, before there were any labels of it, it was waiting for the labels, waiting for the conceptualizations. But it was already there, absolutely inherently, really. Not just as a philosophical abstraction, but when you think of your mind, many of you in your conversations with me have made comments about your mind. My mind is mean, my mind is agitated, my mind is sleepy, my mind is afflicted, my mind is suffering, my mind is anxious. It certainly sounds like it's really there. My mind is the mind of a sentient being. Of this I'm absolutely certain. And it's real. I'm really a sentient being. Do you not feel that? That this is not simply something conceptually designated. This was already true before you thought about it. So now, individually, don't ask me what the Buddhists mean by mind. Don't ask me what the referent of mind is. Then you'll just be thinking about my thoughts. What's the point? The root of suffering is not Buddhist ideas or my interpretation. The root of suffering we brought to the teachings. Bring to mind now, when you think of your mind, When you think in your own mind, my mind, what comes to mind? What is the referent? My mind. And specifically, here's where the 
sharp blade, the scalpel, comes in to be very sharp. If you can recognize that you do tend to reify your own mind as something that is real, something that exists prior to and independent of conceptual and verbal labeling, bring that mind to mind. There's no question this is subtle, but there's also no question that when you think my mind, you are thinking of something, and you're probably thinking of something that you regard as real. Bring that to mind. What kind of a mind do you have? Bring it to mind. Conceive of it. This sentient being's mind that is clearly, absolutely, not a Buddha mind. And now ask, this mind that is ever so real can be oppressive and relentless and disturbing, agitating, bring so much misery with it. Where did it come from? What are its origins? And don't think about things you've learned, about brain or Buddhism and this and that, but bring this mind to mind. Is it always there? Is it always present? Or is it sometimes there and sometimes not, as when you, for example, you're in deep sleep? You don't have a mind then, do you? So when you wake up, where does this mind come from? From moment to moment, where does this mind come from? Examine closely.
and mind don't go back to Buddhist answers. Oh, the thoughts emerge from the substrate, and so on and so on. No, the mind, the mind that is really there, this truly existent mind. Have you ever see it, seen where it comes from? Or does it come from nothing? How does something come from nothing? Also analyze this conceptually, the mind, your mind, the mind you know so well, that brings you joy and sorrow, peace and anxiety. When you examine closely, you really think it comes out of neurons and synapses and dendrites? Any evidence for that? Do you really believe that? If it doesn't emerge from inside your head, and then clearly there's no evidence that that's true. This mind that is so real, do you really think it comes from outside? Are you possessed by some mind that comes and gets you from outside? Or does your mind, this fiercely real entity that has emerged from some non-physical realm. You ever seen it where it comes from? Where does it really come from? present moment. This mind right now, it's definitely there. You're using the mind. You have a mind. It's a sentient being's mind. It's real. What's more real than your mind? You care about it more than anything else. It's primary after all. More important than your body, more important than speech. Where is it? This real mind of yours right now, where is it? In front of you, behind you, all around, inside the head, outside the head. Where is it? If it's real, it's got to be somewhere. Either in physical space or in some non-physical space. Where is it? It's your mind. Look for it. real as it is, when you fall deep asleep, 
There's nowhere, nowhere is mind to be found. So when you fall asleep, or from moment to moment, where does mind go? When it's no longer present, where does it go? If it's real, it must go someplace. Just as if it's real, it must come from someplace, it must be someplace. And when it goes, it must go someplace else. Where? It's your mind. Examine closely. Have you ever seen the mind, really? A thought isn't the mind, an emotion isn't the mind. The space of the mind is the space of the mind, it's not the mind. And memories are not the mind and perceptions. None of these are the mind. They are exactly what they are. They're thoughts, memories, perceptions, appearances. That's not the mind. So can you see the mind right now? The mind, the referent of that term, as you regard it as being real and powerful and at times unbearable, at times joyful. Let the mind come forth and look at it closely. Because our time is short, we'll go right to the conclusion that has been drawn by countless yogis over centuries. True or false, here it is. This mind, this truly existent mind, is never seen any more than a truly existent physical world out there is never seen. This mind doesn't really come from anywhere. It's empty of origin. It doesn't really exist anywhere. 
it's empty of location. And it doesn't really go anywhere. It's empty of destination. It is utterly empty. There is no mind in here any more than there is a physical universe out there, independent of conceptual designation. Rest in the emptiness of your own mind. Utterly rest in silence for the rest of the session. So this is a classic practice, a classic practice of vipassana focused on the mind. It's been around for many, many centuries. Dujum Lingba is simply one link in this sequence of teaching this. And when he's teaching it here in the 
middle to late 19th century, there were no materialists within a thousand miles. They knew about them, that in ancient India there was these really wacko people that were charvakas, and they were believed that everything was just material. But, you know, everybody recognized they were stupid, and they just passed away. They kind of faded out. You know. So he's teaching this to people who are not materialistic. He's teaching, identify the mind as the all-creating sovereign. And as soon as it's drawn into all of the weight, all of the burden of reality, is on the mind, the all-creating sovereign. That sounds pretty heavy. Then saying, okay, have you found the all-creating sovereign? Now see whether that's really there. So the prelude to that, I think, I just it's kind of a delicious symmetry here. I'm really enjoying it in the 21st century. And that is this current for pretty much the last century, which is very strong, and I think it's actually increasing. It is increasing. No, it's definitely increasing. I've seen it in my lifetime. That only the physical universe is real. The objective, physical, quantifiable, that's the only thing that's real. And subjective experience either doesn't exist at all, we have three options, it doesn't exist at all, and there are major thinkers that say that, or it does exist but it's purely illusory, or it does exist but the only reason it exists is because it's equivalent to objective physical processes in the brain. Those are the only three options. So the symmetry here is beautiful. That from the materialistic perspective, the internal world of our subjective experience either doesn't exist or is completely misleading illusion. And from the chitta-matra perspective, the outside physical world that exists independently of the mind either doesn't exist at all or it's an illusion. Isn't it beautiful? That it's complete symmetry. In other words, each side is saying, you're totally wrong. And this is what Dujim Lingma is setting us up for. Right there, where it's just kind of like two bowls. Somebody's going to die here. You know? I mean, they're going to be a dead bowl. And then Dujim Lingma, and he's following this whole current, at least a thousand years old, Mahamudra and Dzogchen, says, all right, you brought it all to the mind. The mind alone is real. There is nothing outside the mind. The mind creates everything. The mind alone is real. Just as the physicalist is saying the physical universe alone is real, that alone is real. Okay, now we have the other side. We've already dispensed with that complete illusion or non-existent altogether. The mind is own, and so we have this reified mind drawing it all into one. It's like having a, a boil where you wait until the boil completely ripens. It's the boil of the mind. Say, good, now, this mind, you've got it, you're holding it in mind, right? This real mind, this absolutely existent mind that is a creator of everything. Where is it? <laughs> where did it come from? Can you see it? And where does it go? And it doesn't exist at all. It sounds like the materialist. But that's where the knife has to be very sharp. There is no school of Buddhism that says the mind doesn't exist at all. It doesn't exist that way. It doesn't exist as something real, bearing its own characteristics from its own side, by its own inherent nature. That is totally non-existent. Totally non-existent. So what the Chitta Mantras just did to the outer world, 
the Majjhimikas come in and do to both. But with principal emphasis, here especially in Mahamudra and Dzogchen, principal emphasis on nuking, kind of a nuclear blast, which means right from the very nucleus of mind, blasting it. Never found, doesn't come from anywhere, isn't located anywhere, doesn't go anywhere. Absolutely, forever, primordially, non-existent. So what did we come with? Now it looks like, actually, understandably, the two bulls killed each other. They both go, (laughs) two big dead bulls. Because the material in this dead as a doornail. It was always crazy. But the chitta mantra looks smart. That winds up, it's just as dead as the other bowl. And what comes out of this is a middle way that says there is an external universe. And there is an internal universe. And they're both illusory. They're both illusory. And they both... This is so obvious, we should have known it from the beginning. They are mutually interdependent. If there's an outside, there has to be an inside. Otherwise, the word outside doesn't mean anything. If there's no outside, there's no inside. The word inside doesn't mean anything. You can't have a universe where you say, left doesn't exist. That's just crazy. And it's as crazy as saying there's no inside, and it's as crazy as saying there's no outside. But take away, if you could take away the left, the right is immediately gone. Take away the outside, the immediate inside is immediately gone. Take away the inside, the outside is immediately gone. Take away tall, short is gone, and so forth. And all of this is spun. All of our theories are spun by the power of conceptual designation. The mind arises independence upon conceptual designation and has no existence prior to and independent of conceptual designation. And now, and I'm sure my guru will be smiling at me now, I hope, hope so, he said, Alan, don't refute atoms. Atoms are back. Welcome, atoms. You can come back now. They were getting so pissed off, they are like, atoms, space, time, matter, energy, all come back. Oh, but by the way, you have no inherent existence. So science come back, materialism, I'm sorry, but you're out forever. And reified world of absolutely existent, I'm sorry, that's out forever, just as inside being inherently existent, that's out forever. It was always wrong. It will forever be wrong. And so there's no place on the middle way for materialism or idealism. And on both sides, there's no room for reification, because reification is self-delusion. And we're born with it, so we can't blame the materialists or the Christians or the Buddhists on that. So there's the middle way. It's a, I, I do truly believe this is a brilliant strategy. Because it's drawing everything to one thing and then, sh- and then shattering it. Everything to one thing, the mind, and then shattering it. Nowhere to be found. As we'll see later in the Vipassana chapter, this is really a big deal. We just did it once. Achieve shamatha and do this practice all over again. What will your concept of mind be? I mean, interesting question, isn't it? You kind of had somewhat, some sense now, because you know you have a sense of mind. I didn't make up that word. And in your own language, I know mind doesn't translate all that perfectly to Italian, Spanish, and Portuguese, but you have your closest shot. So it had to be personal. Otherwise, we're just doing some Buddhist exercise. But the source of our suffering is not Buddhism. 
The source of our suffering is what we bring to Buddhism, and that means we have to recognize what's your idea of your mind. Why are you taking yourself so seriously as a sentient being? Bearing in mind the term sentient being in Tibetan is semjen, a mind-haver. Well, a Buddha has a mind, and we say, no, no, not that kind of mind. If you're a Dharmakaya-haver, then you're in great shape. No, when it says semjen as a sentient being, that's referring to delusional mind with mental afflictions, dualistic grasping, that mind. And because I have one of those, therefore I am really a sentient being, therefore I'm really not Avalokiteshvara. That was a lot of fun to do, but that was make-believe. Because after all, I'm really a mind-haver. That is not my body that makes me a sentient being. It's not my speech that makes me a sentient being. It's a semchen. It's my mind, my, that I, the fact that I have a samsaric mind, that's the problem. That's what makes me a sentient being, and that's make, what makes me really a sentient being. Because I really have a samsaric mind. Except when you look for it, you can't find it. Things are looking up. The very notion that our very existence as a sentient being is something conceptually constructed should come as a source of great relief. Because if you constructed it, you can deconstruct it. If it's inherently real, count on about three countless eons for starters to wear it out. If you're practicing on the basis of, I'm really a sentient being, and now I'm going to accumulate all the causes to getting over it and to becoming a Buddha, it's about three countless eons. Because that's because your practice is on a delusional basis from the very beginning. So why not just start out on the right track? And this is what Dujam Lam is saying before even shamatha. First of all, bring all your unification into one, one area, the mind, and then nuke it. Blast it apart. At least get some sense of it, that this mind is not inherently existent. It's not real. It, of its own nature. This is very important, because I've been listening to you in our interviews. The mind that you think tortures you, It's not there. It's not really there. It's not doing anything to you. Any more than if you were in a dream and you're saying, oh, the, the people in the dream are making me so miserable. Well, only because you're reifying them. If you're lucid, no one can harm you in a dream because you're recognizing the dream as a dream. You're recognizing mental events as mental events. But if you're delusional, anybody, somebody can flip you the bird in a dream. Oh, I hate it when people, they're so rude, so crude, so vulgar. I hate it when people do it. Just, oh. A dream person flipping you the bird, right? Even that can make you unhappy. It's quite a brilliant strategy. At least, as again, bear in mind, this is before you're setting out on the path. What does he say? <clears throat> Time is running short. And you're going to have, at least you'll have a whole weekend to figure this all out. <laughs> okay, he gave the one-liner. Examine the body, speech, and mind, and among them recognize the one that is primary as the all-creating sovereign. That was one whole meditation. That was yesterday's. Now today's meditation. The shape and color of the all-creating sovereign, as well as, it doesn't have any, right? As well as its origin, its location, and destination are objectless openness. Nowhere to be found. Unfindable. You find that they're not there. 
objectless openness. This is the spontaneous actualization of the essential nature of the path of cutting through. Boy, this is so incredibly concise. To realize this point, which is summarized in one sentence, this is the spontaneous actualization of the essential nature of the path of cutting, cutting through. Cutting through is cutting through your mind to pristine awareness. And he said, I've just given you in one sentence the core tool for doing that. Because as long as you're reifying your mind and identifying with it, there's zero chance of realizing Rikpa. Zero chance. As long as you're reifying the dream and realizing your, your, your persona, yourself, in the dream, there's zero chance of becoming lucid. As long as you're reifying it, as long as you think it's really there, then you cannot become lucid. Because if it's really there, then you're not dreaming. But you are dreaming, therefore, you're in a bind. You've got to realize the emptiness of yourself in the dream if you have any chance of becoming lucid. Or if you are lucid, you, you must have realized that you're not really there. You're not that dream persona. So I want to share with you something that we have time is short, but it's really, I just find wonderful. And it's from a scientist. He's 86 years, 86 years old now. His name is David. Not, he's not famous. But among the theoretical physicists, he's well known and highly respected. His name is David Ritz Finkelstein. He's 86 years old. Taught for years as a fully endowed professor, probably had an endowed chair, I can't remember, at Georgia Tech, Georgia Institute of Technology. Very fine institute. And he's internationally renowned. He's, he's respected. His work in theoretical physics, working in general relativity theory, gave the evidence to persuade Roger Penrose and John Archibald Wheeler, the most famous mathematician alive and one of the two most brilliant theoretical physicists of the latter part of the 20th century, he persuaded them that black holes actually exist. So this man's no lightweight, right? And we were, I was fortunate enough, I know him personally, uh, because he was invited to a mine, yeah, to a minor life meeting in 1987, for which I have the joyous privilege of serving as interpreter. He very kindly agreed when His Holiness asked me to to put together an anthology of essays on Buddhism and science. Then I spoke with the I contacted the finest scientists that I knew, who I thought would have something to contribute, and David Fitz, Fitz, uh, Fitz, Ritz Finkelstein then agreed to write an essay, and he did. I'm just going to it's it's. It's tough. It's a difficult essay. But listen to this. I hope you enjoy it as much as I If you enjoy it one-tenth as much as I do, you can enjoy it a lot. Okay? This is all I have to say for tonight. But I find this so enormously relevant for a person who has very little understanding in Buddhism, but really knows his physics so well. Here's what he says. He starts out with history, which is very unusual for a physicist. Going back to the 17th century. An idol Here's the term he's going to really emphasize, an idol. We all know what that means, an idol, but he defines it. An idol in the language of Francis Bacon, one of the architects of modern science, a contemporary of Galileo and Descartes, one of the brilliant minds who kind of conceived what should science be all about, enormously influential, an Englishman. An idol in the language of Francis Bacon, and this is in a book he wrote in 1620, is a false absolute resulting from reification Sounding familiar? This is from a Christian, by the way, in the 17th century, and narrated by a physicist of the 20th century who is secular. He's a, I don't think he's Jewish, but I don't think he's religious Jewish. Never asked. 
idols of the tribe. So that's an idol. Idols of the tribe. Another technical term from Francis Bacon. Idols of the tribe are those common to a whole community, such as those resulting from innate propensities to reify. Sounding familiar? Idols of the theater. Idols, idols of the tribe, idols of the theater are those erected within a particular theory. And then David Finkelstein says, if my usage differs from Bacon's, it is because I regard idols as inevitable and useful products of the same theory-making process that breaks them. This is exactly what Dujum Lima just did. Make an idol of the mind, the all-creating sovereign, and then break it. Tsongkhapa says that as you're conceptually investigating emptiness, the conceptual mind that is doing it is itself caught up in dualistic grasping. What, what choice do we have? But he said it's like a parasite that's eating a tree and then turns around and eats itself. He continues, the Galilean compound, Galileo, compound space slash time. He's using his words very carefully. The Galilean compound of space slash time forms from the Aristotelian simple time and simple space when time swallows space. I'll explain that a little bit because I read his article. According to Aristotle, space is absolute, Time is absolute, period. Galileo looked into this, and he, and he said, time swallows space. That is, going back to Finkelstein, that is, in Galilean, Galilean thought, there is no space separate from time. Now, space does not inherently exist. Space is dependent upon time, but time is not dependent upon space. So one is absolute, the other one's not absolute. One is dependent, the other one is independent and therefore absolute. In Galilean thought, there is no space separate from time. We cannot recognize the same place at a different time. And to speak of it has no meaning. But there is still time within space-time, and still a unique space at each time, <coughs> and a time slice of the tree of history. <coughs> Continuing, Al Galileo has absolute time. That's real an absolute space hyphen time, but no absolute space. Such one-way coupling is a sure sign of a compound and is circumstantial evidence that the unresponsive partner in the coupling, that is something that's inert, that is something that's absolute, something that does not depend on anything else, that's the inert one, right? In a coupling, one's inert, the other one's active, this is circumstantial evidence that the unresponsive partner is in the coupling is what Francis Bacon called an idol, a false absolute. So Aristotle had two, false absolute space and false absolute of time. Galileo said, not so fast with space. But yeah, time is absolute. Galileo had shown that space was an invalid reification. In other words, a false absolute, a false idol. 
Einstein's development showed that time was two. Einstein also broke down another idol. These are idol crashers. Aristotle's two uncoupled absolutes, space and time, had evolved through the compound space hyphen time of Galileo into the one, the one symmetrically coupled absolute space-time of Einstein. But now space-time is an absolute. It's absolutely out there, space-time. You know, it warps, it woofs, and so forth. So now two individual absolutes have been broken down, but there's one to replace space-time. In Einstein's view, that's absolute, inherently existent, real, and idle. In classical physics since Descartes, physicists took for granted that there was a special variable of the system called its state of being implicitly, its state, independent of the experimenter, and completely describing the system. That's what science is all about. There's a state, something really happening, and scientists completely describe the system. When they're finished, science is finished. And that's what we're approximating. When an ideal experimenter determines the state, the state couples to the experimenter who learns something, but the experiment does not couple to the state which is fixed. The state is the objective universe. That's an absolute that influences the experimenter, but the experimenter doesn't influence absolute reality, physical reality. It's out there. It doesn't care whether you're observing it or not. It's out there, right? The universe becomes an idol. Space-time becomes an idol. Mass-energy becomes an idol. The state of the universe is an idol. It's there. It influences, but it's not influenced. Here, the state is the absolute, like the time of Galileo or the space-time of special relativity. He's doing a tour de force here from Aristotle to Galileo to Einstein, and of course he's not finished. You ready? In quantum physics, learning something about the system and doing something to the system are no longer fantasized as being fundamentally different kinds of action. The act of determining a property is an interaction between the experimenter and the system that now has significant consequences for both. In other words, the idol is gone. The act of measurement is observing is influencing that which you're measuring as that which you're measuring is influencing the experimenter. It's now symmetry, it's now absolute breaking. Another idol is shattered, and this idol is the state of the universe. The idea of visualizing anything completely and exactly, a goal of some mental practices, is renounced by Bohr, Niels Bohr, one of the great architects of quantum mechanics. This whole notion of visualizing anything completely and exactly is renounced by Bohr and is alien to quantum mechanics. Since illuminating the system, which is measuring the system, well, you've done that every time you practice subtly in the mind in natural state. You're illuminating the system, right? since illuminating the system disturbs it unpredictably. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> disturbs it unpredictably. Completely visualizing anything as it is, is self-contradictory. As it is, 
means without external intervention, in which case the system is sitting alone in the dark, unperceived. It's making me so happy. <laughs> when the question arose whether concepts like variable, matter, space, time, law, unity had been expressed in the Sanskrit or Tibetan Buddhist literature, because he prepared for this conference, open mind, they're dangerous. When the question arose whether concepts like a variable, matter, space, time, law, unity had been expressed in the Sanskrit or Tibetan Buddhist literature versus from Nagarjuna's Madhyamaka treatise, The Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way, he's getting bowled over now, can indeed be read as saying that space, time, matter, and causation are interactive with no permanent essence. And that is inferred from the very fact that we perceive them. Critical steps in the evolution of physics have required us both to break prior idols and to form appropriate new ones. The Madhyamaka appears to focus on the first part of this process, the emptying of concepts and not the formation of new idols. See, everything is empty and do not reify emptiness. That's Nagarjuna. That's core Nagarjuna. If you turn emptiness into an idol, you've turned the only medicine for samsara into poison. Laplace and Einstein believed in the existence of an absolute law and took it as the supreme goal of physics. But other Western scientists and philosophers, including Newton, Mach, Whitehead, like some Buddhist and Hindu philosophers, declared that there is no fixed absolute law of nature and that it makes sense to speak of a varying law. Bohm, David Bohm, another outstanding quantum physicist, wrote in 1965, Bohm's expression of this philosophy especially influenced me. David Finkelstein, he views a scientific theory as a specialized extension of normal human discourse. A theory is something that we tell one another. A final all-inclusive theory is as unlikely as a final all-inclusive story. The name of his essay is Emptiness and Relativity. Kalashakotranta, and then we're finished. It's only five minutes after. Kalashakotranta, one site. There's a book by a great 19th century scholar on Abid the kind of world systems according to Abhidhamma, Vajrayana, and Dzogchen. It's been published for 20 years or so. It's a very good, very good scholarship, very good translation as well. It's one of the great remit scholars. Can't remember right now the title. It's easily found. But in this, Kalachakra is, is cited. Kalachakra is also included. Abhidhamma, I think specifically Kalachakra for Vajrayana and then Dzogchen. But this is the story, you know, of Mount Meru and all that kind of business. And the Kalachakra Tantra states, there is no one, there is no absolutely correct theory of the universe. Not the Abhidhamma version, not the Kalachakra version, not the Dzogchen version. There is, in terms of conventional reality, what is out there. There is no theory that is the right one. They're all from a perspective, and they may be even incompatible 
just like one thing cannot be a particle and a wave. They may be incompatible, they may differ, they may be very contradictory. And some can be wrong, but there can be multiple right ones, and none of them has priority over all the others. The only invariable reality in the universe that is definitive is the emptiness of all phenomena, including emptiness itself. So, I think you have enough to keep you busy for a day. <laughs> Enjoy your weekend, and I'll see you Monday morning. <laughs>